And welcome to Book Sandwiched In. My name is Bill Crossland. I'm with Friends of the Library in Knox County. We are honored today to welcome Mark Stevens, public defender for the 6th District. Mark practiced law in the private sector for nearly 10 years before committing to public defense services. He has dedicated his public defender career to building the Knox County Public Defender's Community Law Office into a national model of client-centered holistic representation. The book, Just Mercy. Would you please welcome. Well, uh, thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Um, I love an opportunity to meet with anyone and talk about the criminal justice system. I was reminded as I was um, talking with one of the guests here earlier, my father, who's deceased now, um, lived in Indianapolis, and um, maybe he exercised poor judgment, but he thought an awful lot of me, and um, he was a fairly conservative guy, and he would from time to time come down to Knoxville, and when he would come down, he would, you know, follow me around and go to court and watch what's going on, and and it was, what was funny is that as, as we would come out of court almost every single time, my dad would look at me and would say, no, that doesn't work that way. The system doesn't work that way. He was so disappointed when he would actually see our courts in operation from this mental picture that he had of how our court system actually works, uh, from what he got from TV or wherever he got it from, I don't know, but I say that to tell you that what just mercy will drive home, I think, is that whatever perceptions you have of the criminal justice system, you might be disillusioned a little bit after you you read just mercy because Brian talks about times when the system doesn't work so well, times when judges maybe aren't as judicial as they should be or when courts are more in tune to the political realities of a situation than they are to seeking justice or when prosecutors drop the ball and worry a little bit too much about getting a conviction as opposed to getting a just result. And so Brian tries to drive home the fact that the, the many of the premises that we, we, the criminal justice system is, is built around don't actually play out very well in our day-to-day activity. So the book is called Just Mercy. I would encourage you, if you haven't read it, to read it. It's a very easy, easy read. It tells you an awful lot about a, a particular individual named Walter McMillan. Brian Stevenson is an, a practicing attorney, and he represented McMillan, who was convicted and sentenced to death. And Brian Stevenson picked up his case after he was on death row. And uh, Brian Stevenson was able to prove that, that Walter McMillan was innocent of the crime that he was charged with and uh, got Walter McMillan off of death row. And, and a, a good bit of the book is about... Walter McMillan's story. Um, Interspersed between the chapters dealing with Walter McMillan, there are a number of other stories. Uh, Brian Stevenson is very engaged in juvenile representation, particularly um, those juveniles who have been sentenced to life without possibility of parole for crimes they committed when they were 13 or 14 years old. And so there are chapters where he talks about his work in in the context of a particular individual's case um, and so you, you get a good sense of juvenile justice in this country and what he's done. I, I wanted to start the presentation by reading you just a small excerpt from the book to give you a flavor of what the book is all about. Brian writes, I've also represented people who have committed terrible crimes, but nonetheless struggle to recover and find redemption. I have discovered deep in the hearts of many condemned and incarcerated people the scattered traces of hope and humanity Seeds of restoration that come to astonishing life when nurtured by very simple interventions. Proximity, which is a theme that is very prevalent throughout the book, proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including a vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, Our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy. 
We all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. That sort of is a premise for the chapters uh, that follow. Contextually, what I want to do is start off with what our criminal justice system currently looks like. Um, In 1972, we had 300,000 people incarcerated in this country. By 2015, we have 2.3 million people incarcerated in this country. Over, over a million people are incarcerated in this country for having committed a nonviolent drug-related offense, mainly possession of some sort of narcotic. We have 6 million people that are on probation or parole in this country. We have 70 million people who have been arrested. Think about that for just a minute. 300,000 people in 1972, and now we have 2.3 million. We make up 5% of the world's population, but we account for 25% of the people who are incarcerated in the world, yet we only make up 5%. We are drunk with incarceration. We have believed since the war on drugs and and maybe the late 1980s, early 1990s that we could incarcerate our way out of our criminal justice problem. But the irony really is when you look at violent crime, you may not realize this, but violent crime is down in this country, and it's down significantly. It's not down a little. And yet our response is to continue to incarcerate people at incredibly high rates. We have violent crime rates that are commensurate with what our violent crime rates were in the 50s. In the 50s. It, it, since 1993, our violent crime rate has dropped 75%. Now, I'm here to tell you, nobody can tell you exactly what that is. Now, the people who are pro-incarceration will tell you the violent crime rate is down because we're incarcerating more people. But, but public defenders will tell you, no, it's that, that public defense has gotten more sophisticated and we're doing a better job representing people. I don't know that either one of those is true. Law enforcement will tell you that it's them. The judges will tell you that it's them. Prosecutors will tell you it's them. Public defenders will tell you it's us. I don't know that any of us really know, but the fact of the matter is violent crime has significantly decreased. And so you've got to ask yourself, if violent crime has decreased and that our violent crime rates are commensurate with what they were in the 50s, why are we incarcerating 2.3 million people? Why are over a million of those people nonviolent offenders? And can, is that a course that we can sustain? Is it a course that we want to continue to sustain? Can we afford on the direction that this country is moving in with regard to, um, to criminal law. We spent $80 billion, with a B, dollars on incarceration last year in this country. $80 billion we're spending jailing people. We jail more people than any other nation in the world. We jail more people per capita than North Korea. We jail more people than China, than Russia, than all of the countries that I think sort of reflexively we would say, oh, we sure aren't that bad. No, we are. We're worse than that. We're worse than all of them. And in in some instances, we're worse than those combined. So contextually, that is where our criminal justice system is. And there are two things that I I would highly recommend to you. Brian Stevenson did a TED Talk, and it's one of the highest viewed TED Talks ever. He collected seven, seven figures for his Equal Justice Initiative law firm in, in Montgomery, Alabama, the night of his TED Talk, which tells you how, well, which is a little bit of a teaser. It's that compelling that you really ought to listen to it. In an interview that he did with Katie Couric, he said, it's easy to be tough on crime. He said, for instance, I can recommend a 20-year sentence for simple possession of marijuana. By God, that's being tough on crime. But it's also being really stupid on crime. And so you don't want a politician who is tough on crime. You want a politician who's smart on crime. And so what the, the goal would be is to enhance public safety. You don't want violent people out on the street. But if you've got your jails full of over a million people who are not violent, and if if by chance that that's causing judges to make decisions about what to do with violent people because of jail overcrowding, that's not a condition that we want. We want to be able to identify those people who are a threat to public safety, and those people, if they need to be incarcerated, then we we need to have the, the availability and the flexibility to be able to do that. But we can't do that if our response to crime is across the board incarcerating everyone. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this theme that that surfaces in his book, The Opposite of Poverty is Not Wealth. The Opposite of Poverty is Justice. And what he means by that is in our criminal justice system for for the poor and for minorities and people of color, they typically are not experiencing justice within our criminal justice system. 
And so the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. I also wanted to talk a little bit about just mercy. Just uh, was intriguing to me, his use of the word just in, in the title. And so there is a paragraph that I think kind of explains what he's saying. He says in this book on page 294, the power of just mercy is that it belongs to the undeserving. It's when mercy is least expected that it's most potent, strong enough to break the cycle of victimization and victimhood, retribution and suffering. It has the power to heal the psychic harm and injuries that lead to aggression and violence, abuse of power, mass incarceration. The term just mercy, what he's saying is mercy is most powerful when it's afforded to someone who least expects it. And usually the folks who are are people of color or poor and who have committed heinous acts, those are the ones who least expect mercy. And so it is consequently most powerful when it is bestowed on them. And so, um, and I think, I think the, the term just has a dual meaning here too because it, he talks later about being broken and he talks about himself and, and his own brokenness and why he does the work that he does and how just mercy is, is just that. It's just mercy that all of us um, in, in recognizing our humanness, can afford to bestow on others because we need it ourselves. He says at one point, mercy is simply a thing to show another human being when you appreciate that everyone, including you, is broke. Um, I, I wanted to give you a little bit of an idea of where he's at. Brian Stevenson runs a law firm called the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. Sometimes my father would say, you know, when someone gets a death sentence, why does it take 20 years to execute them? Well, what I thought I would do for you here is explain to you the criminal justice system and the stages that a case goes through. Each one of these blue boxes um, is a court. It is a, um, the beginning and the end of a new procedure, proceeding with a court that has jurisdiction over the cases that I'm handling. And so if I get a first-degree murder case, typically these are the... 13 stages that my case will go through. Um, public defenders like myself, um, when an individual is charged with a crime, I'm appointed at that point. And so if you look at the Sessions Court level, that would be where I'm involved in. Almost the day that the individual is arrested, that individual will come before a magistrate, and if he's poor and he qualifies for court-appointed counsel, I would be appointed at that stage, and I would remain with him. I would be his lawyer through stage... Five, um, and once once it goes to six, seven, and eight, there would be a federal public defender who would be involved in that. And then once it comes back to state court in in stage nine, there would be a new lawyer that was appointed to him at that point. And so I would be representing the individual through stage five. There would be a new lawyer, six, seven, and eight, who has I, I, uh, state public defenders are not allowed to practice in federal court. And so at stage six. The case moves from state court to federal court, and I'm not allowed to go into federal court. And so a federal public defender would be appointed to represent him in stage six, seven, and eight. When it comes back to nine, it comes back to state court again, but the claim is a a claim of a constitutional violation. It's called a post-conviction relief petition, usually alleging ineffective assistance of counsel. And then if if it's alleging ineffective assistance of counsel, I can't represent him for that because the claim would be that his counsel in stages one through five did not provide him the constitutional level of service that he was otherwise entitled. So a new lawyer would be appointed at stage nine. That lawyer would stay with him 9, 10, 11, and 12, and then it moves in stage 13 to the federal court, so it would have to have a federal public defender appointed there. Brian Stevenson gets involved usually, not always, but usually at level 13. And so um, what we see is Brian Stevenson's operation runs. When he's representing someone, that, that individual has usually been through the state process, has been convicted, has appealed their conviction, and has lost on appeal, they have usually filed an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, what they call a post-conviction claim. Brian was not usually, usually not involved at that stage. And so it's not until the very last part of the process, what's called a federal habeas corpus petition, where you're alleging, again, a violation of a constitutional right in federal court. I hope your eyes aren't glassing over. And this may be, we may be too much in the weeds here, but I just wanted you to, to realize that when Brian gets involved in his book, points this out well. It's very, 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 very late in the game. And for those clients that he's representing who have been given a death sentence, when Brian gets involved, it's usually a month or two before their scheduled execution. 
And one of the things they try to do is to take everything that's happened in the first 12 stages, uh, usually thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of transcripts and multiple hearings and multiple courts, and you try to read it as fast as you can and understand the procedural history of the case, try to understand where the mistakes were made, and you try to allege in a federal habeas petition why your client should be given a stay of his execution and why the federal court should take a look at the process to see if there were any constitutional violations along that, along that continuum. So my job is much different. I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's harder or easier. It's just very, very different uh, representing a client in the first five stages than what Brian typically does in the last three. And Brian is not only limited to the last three. He tells a very compelling story about a juvenile who um, shot a man who was abusive to his mother, and he, he was appointed at stage one of that process. And so Brian will occasionally be involved in what we call the predispositional stage. The Tennessee death penalty process, I tried to lay it out for you. It's very similar to the, the uh, diagram that I showed just earlier. It moves through the state court, um, and then once you are convicted and, and a death sentence is imposed, the public defender would appeal that. It would go through. Tennessee has a Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals, and then you have, on a death sentence, you have an automatic right to be reviewed by the Tennessee Supreme Court. And then once you're reviewed by the Tennessee Supreme Court, if that conviction is affirmed, then you move to the federal court, and you ask the federal court to look whether that process, that prosecution, violated any constant federal constitutional rights of the client as opposed to state constitutional rights. And so that gives you an idea of the process um, that death penalty cases go through. Since the book is a lot about Walter McMillan and his case, and Walter McMillan is about um, wrongful convictions, exonerations have been documented in this country since 1989. There are several organizations that are doing that, and they have documented 1,689 wrongful convictions since 1989. The point I want to say about that is they have documented 1,689. They've also indicated that there have been 10 in Tennessee, but I could tell you that there's been hundreds in Tennessee. But the way that those are handled, they don't fall on a, on a wrongful conviction exoneration uh, database. And, and what I mean by that is th- there is an individual who was convicted of first-degree murder in Memphis. He was sentenced to death. He spent six years on death row. He he got a law firm out of New York who was ultimately able to prove that he was innocent of the charge. And when the state finally conceded innocence, rather than stand up and say, well, I hope I don't offend people when when I say it this way, and I don't mean to be throwing stones, but rather than stand up and say, we, the state, charged an innocent man and we prosecuted and convicted an innocent man, and this man has been in prison for 28 years and he's innocent, What they will typically do is concede that they would agree to some sort of resolution where the client pleads guilty or takes what's called an Alford plea and takes something that that goes down on the book anyway as a time served and you get out of jail today. That would not be recorded as a wrongful conviction on any sort of an exoneration database. That would go down as a conviction. And so in Dume, for instance, the the gentleman that I'm talking about, once it was determined that he was wrongfully convicted, spent a couple more years in prison before they were actually able to tie everything together and get him out. And then it was only if he would agree to take an Alfred plea. An Alfred plea says to the court, I'm not saying I'm guilty but I'm saying that it's in my best interest to plead guilty because it brings to a close this prosecution. And so a defendant who takes an Alford plea doesn't admit guilt, but nevertheless he accepts whatever the court finds, and the court will find guilt on an Alford plea, um, and that's what Ndume wound up doing. And so in, in, for database purposes, he was convicted because he entered an Alford plea. But everybody agreed that, that Ndume was wrongfully convicted. In fact, everybody agreed he was in Missouri when the crime in Tennessee was committed and that he had never been to Tennessee prior to uh, him being arrested in Missouri and brought to Tennessee and charged with a capital murder case and convicted. It is a little deceiving when you look at Tennessee statistics on exonerations and wrongful convictions. You will see that we've had 10 in Tennessee. We've had a lot more than 10 in Tennessee. I've represented a man who was wrongfully charged. Now, he did not get convicted. We were able to prove after about six months that they had the wrong guy. But it it happens, and you, you might... You might be skeptical that it happens, but I can assure you it does. And, and, and what I've done is I've pulled for you 
the leading causes of wrongful convictions. And so what the database will show you is that in 56% of the 1,689 wrongful convictions, 56% of those involved lying snitches. And I don't say that to throw stones, but a witness who usually is a cellmate or somebody that's in uh, the holding cell with an individual while they're going, getting ready to go to trial who then contacts the DA and says, I know something and I can testify to help you win your case. And, and, and the state does it a lot. And so it's not per se bad to do, but um, a snitch testifying should be particularly suspect uh, and you should look very carefully, and prosecutors do, as to the, the credibility of what it is they say. But in 56% of those wrongful convictions, they found that those snitches that were cooperating witnesses had perjured themselves. Uh, in 47% of those wrongful conviction cases, they showed that there was official misconduct, either through a prosecutor or a police officer. In 32% of those cases, there was mistaken eyewitness identification testimony. Most people think eyewitness identification is the most reliable piece of evidence that a prosecutor can have, and I think all the, the, the research out there shows that it's really the most suspect of evidence that eyewitness identification is fraught with, with uh, potential mistakes. 22% of the wrongful convictions uh, uh, involved false or misleading forensic uh, evidence. We, we find out over time that what we thought to be science really wasn't or it was flawed science and we adjust and then we have to go back and look at those cases where an individual was convicted based on forensic evidence when it, when it later is proven to be uh, not scientifically valid. And then finally, uh, what most people find to be just amazing, 13% of those wrongful convictions, those clients confessed. They confessed to committing a crime they didn't commit. And, and I think most of us, myself included, most of us will sit back and scratch our head and think, how does that happen? How does a person say they did something they didn't do? Well, in 13% of those 1,689 cases, individuals confessed to crimes they didn't commit. And, and these are exonerations based on evidence that, I can tell you a prosecutor won't give up a conviction very easily. When they do it, it's because there is overwhelming proof of, of innocence. And so when you have 13% of those cases involving false confessions, I think it's pretty amazing. There is a chapter that's very compelling in this book. It's titled, I'm Here. In this particular chapter, they are having a hearing in Walter McMillan's case. And by now, it's starting to look like man, Walter McMillan didn't do this, and they might actually be able to prove that he didn't do it. They go into court the first day, and they have about eight hours of testimony, and it's pretty overwhelming testimony, and it's pretty damning testimony in terms of what the police officers did to secure a conviction in, in Walter McMillan's case. They put on two of the snitches, both of whom said, we lied, and we lied because the prosecutors threatened us. One of them said they put me on death row before I was convicted and told me that if I didn't tell, if I didn't tell the story as they are telling me to tell it, I was going to remain on death row. And so I caved in and I wound up to, uh, doing what the, what the police officers told. And so this book describes this first day as being really shocking, shocking evidence that they were able to elicit. And Walter McMillan, the entire uh, African-American community in this little town had come out in support of him, and the courtroom was packed. And um, this particular chapter, there's a, a woman who is um, one of the, the senior members of the African-American community, an old petite lady who was sort of uh, rallying the troops on behalf of Walter McMillan and was um, felt like she needed to be a witness. She needed to stand for Walter against injustice. And... Um, she was there, and she was dressed, as you might imagine, her hat and her coat and her gloves and all that. She was on the front row of the, uh, of the courtroom. The next day when they came, um, Walt, uh, Brian says he notices as he's coming into the courtroom, his entire group of people that were there the day before were outside the courtroom. They weren't in, and he didn't know what was going on, and he asked them. And what, the, what he found out is that overnight the prosecutor didn't like that all those people were in the courtroom, and so what they did was they called in uh, the troops, and they, they brought in dogs, and they brought in metal detectors, and they made anybody who wanted to come in to the courtroom go through these metal detectors standing next to these police dogs that were right next to them, and, and no member of the black community that was there wanted to go through, well, not many of them, but this particular lady couldn't do it because she was 
a part of the protests on the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, and she was coming across the bridge when they turned the dogs loose on her, and she sustained pretty serious injuries as a result of that. And so she was intimidated by the dog, and she couldn't get up enough nerve to go through the metal detector and walk past the dog. And so this book tells a pretty compelling story about how disappointed she was when the second day she couldn't get up enough courage to go into courtroom and support Walter McMillan. And so uh, Brian Stevenson, after the second day, had a talk with her that night, and she promised Brian and she promised Walter McMillan uh, that she was going to be there the next day. The next day she does. She uh, triumphantly walks in to the courtroom and walks past the dog. She was able to muster the courage. <laughs> and the, uh, the story is kind of funny. Once she gets there, she stands in the front, front row of the courthouse screaming, um, I'm here, I ain't. I ain't scaring no dog, is what she kept saying. <laughs> and so the, uh, the the judge recognized her, and then when they all sat down, she wouldn't sit down. She kept standing up screaming, I'm here. So, excuse me. The, the second chapter that I wanted to highlight is a, is a chapter about mitigation. Um, Brian Stevenson tells in this in this particular chapter, he goes to prison to see one of his clients who is badly damaged. Um, He had been in, I think they said, 19 foster homes by the time he was eight or nine years old. He had been sexually abused in most of them. Um, At one point, he he describes that this client's foster parents had taken them out into the woods and chained him to a tree and was, you know, like you might a cat or a dog that you'd had enough of. You wanted to get rid of it. Um, and um, this individual had suffered serious PTSD as a result of his raising in foster care and then had grown up a damaged individual and wound up committing a, a heinous act of murder and had been convicted uh, for murder and had been sentenced to death. And Brian Stevenson was representing him, and Brian Stevenson learned that none of that was brought out during the course of the trial. In a capital case, it's a bifurcated hearing is the way it works. You have a guilt-innocence trial where the jury decides whether or not you're guilty of the offense. If the jury finds that you're guilty of first-degree murder, you immediately move to the second phase, which is a sentencing hearing. It's unlike any other trial that you'll have in Tennessee. We have judge sentencing in Tennessee, and so a jury finds you guilty or innocent. If they find you guilty, then about 60 days passes, and you go in front of a judge, and you have a sentencing hearing. And the judge sentences you based on the sentencing grid in Tennessee. There are formulas. uh, Individuals are characterized as range one, two, three, or career offenders, and offenses are leveled by severity, or ranked by severity, and judges are given ranges of punishment. So For instance, if I was a range one offender convicted of a B felony, uh, the range would be 8 to 12. The judge could sentence me as low as 8. He could sentence me as high as 12. But that's the limit to, to what he could do. Unlike a capital case where the jury finds you guilty of the offense and then the jury decides whether to sentence you to death or to sentence you to life with the possibility of parole. Unfortunately, in Tennessee, life with the possibility of parole, you have to serve 51 calendar years before you're eligible for parole. doesn't mean you'll be paroled. You're not eligible to be paroled until you serve 51 calendar years. And so if you're representing someone, say, 25 years old, charged with murder, and they get convicted of life with the possibility of parole, they'd be 76 years old before they'd be eligible to meet the board. So... In Tennessee, there's very little difference, really, between life with the possibility of parole, life without the possibility of parole. You're pretty much, if you get a life sentence in Tennessee, you're going to die in prison. It's unlikely that you're going to get out, although I guess if you live to be 75 or so in prison, you you could, um, conceivably. And so in this particular case, Brian's client had been convicted. And during the sentencing phase, a lawyer's job is to present mitigation, to present all of those facts and circumstances within the client's life that would justify a judge mitigating a sentence of death and instead imposing a sentence of life without the possibility of parole or life with the possibility of parole. And so someone who had been abandoned by his parents and had been raised in multiple foster homes by the age of eight, who had been brutalized or sexually abused, those are things that the judge can choose to consider in determining sentence, but doesn't have to. The judge can determine what weight, if any, that mitigating proof he wants to give. 
but certainly a lawyer has to, to introduce mitigating proof. It's, it's, it's our obligation to do that. And in this particular case, the lawyer who represented this individual didn't put on any mitigating proof. And so when it got to the sentencing hearing, he conceded that there was nothing uh, to put on about this guy's life, and the guy was given debt. And so Brian is getting involved in this. And if, when you're in federal court on federal Hague, what, he, what you're telling the federal judge is the lawyer who handled this case at trial in front of a jury violated this individual's constitutional right to the effective assistance of counsel because he or she failed to do one of the essential things that a lawyer should do in a capital case. And so the challenge for people like Brian Stevenson is you can prove things should have been done that weren't done, but that doesn't get you any relief. You have to prove that they should have been done, they weren't done, and if they had been done, the result would have been different. And that's the real challenge. I mean, how do you go about proving that? You have to so overwhelmingly prove that the result would have been different that almost no one can argue with you about that. And so in a case like this, that mitigation proof should have been introduced. There's no question about that. But the rub is it's difficult to prove what weight the judge would have given and, and to prove beyond a reasonable doubt or by a preponderance of the evidence that the, that the result would have been different. So he's explaining this to us in this chapter, and he talks about going to the prison to see this. And as he pulls up to this prison, he parks next to a truck that has a very large Confederate flag on the back, and it had all sorts of bumper stickers on it that were racially offensive bumper stickers, one of them that said, um, if I knew it was going to be like this, I'd have picked my own damn cotton. And there were things like that that were racially offensive. And uh, he walks around the truck, and he says, I, I find myself reading these bumper stickers, and I, they were the most offensive thing. I, uh, Brian Stevenson, of course, is African-American. He found them to be particularly offensive. And, and some of them he, he says I'd, I'd never seen before, so I was reading them. And I walk in, and um, this one particular guard, you, when you go to prison, you have to prearrange your visit. So I have to contact the warden and get the warden's permission to see my client. And then when I get there, I have to get there at a precise time. I just can't go and see a client. And then when I get there, I have to go through a process of being screened and cleared in order to get in. I have to be, all, all of my items are taken off of me. I go through a metal detector. Now, because I'm a lawyer, I'm usually afforded um, a less scrutiny, maybe, than a, um, a family member of a defendant might be afforded. I do go through a metal detector. Uh, I am patted down. I am not subjected to strip searches. Well, Brian is talking about in this particular instance, he is being subjected to a higher level of scrutiny than he's used to. He goes to prisons all the time. And this particular guard was giving him a very hard time, and this particular guard told him he was going to have to be searched. And so Brian did what I do all the time. You do this, and they wand you, and then they pat you down. And this guy said, no, 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 we're not doing that. You need to step into the room and take all your clothes off. And he says, no, 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 you're, you're, you're mistaken. I'm a lawyer. I'm not, you know, and he, I, he says, I know who you are. You're stepping in here. You're getting strip searched. And so this very aggressive officer subjects him to a strip search. And then when he puts his clothes back on and he steps back out, he says, now you've got to go back and sign the book. And he says, no, I've already signed the lawyer book. There's a, a journal that lawyers sign who they're going to see when they get there, when they leave. And then there's a family or other book where, you know, anybody else who's coming into the prison has to, has to sign in. This particular guard made him go back and sign the other book along with the lawyer book. And so he's talking about how difficult this is. Of course, as it turns out, that's the guy who owns the truck, and he saw Brian going around the truck, and so he was going to sort of let him have it a little bit. But at the end of this chapter, this guard is then uh, given the responsibility of transporting this particular client to a federal court where the hearing takes place, where Brian has to put on all the mitigating proof that should have been put on when this guy was facing trial. And this guard sits there and listens to it. Another aside is this, this particular client is also severely mentally ill, and one of the things Brian tells is that every time he sees him, the first thing the client asks him is, did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? And Brian has to say, no, I didn't bring you a chocolate milkshake. And, and then he talks about how difficult his relationship is with the guy because all the guy wants to focus on is this chocolate milkshake because he's mentally ill. And so he actually went to the warden and said, would you allow me to bring a chocolate milkshake in the next time I come? It would really help me get through the work that I need to get through with this guy. And, of course, the warden said no. 
Well, in this particular instance, after having two days of hearings in federal court where he introduces this mitigating proof, the next time he goes to prison, he says he walks in and he sees that guard, and so he gets ready for the strip search, and the guard says, you know, you don't need to do that. And he said, I, I know who you are. You're a lawyer. He said, I'll just, so he wands him instead of strip searches him. And, and then Brian Stevenson said, oh, wait a minute, I forgot to sign the book. And the guard says, you don't need to sign the book. I saw you come and I signed it. He thinks, wow, what, what is, what's the change for, you know? And he says, as he's walking through, the guard pulls him over and he says, hey, he said, that stuff you put on at the hearing, he said, uh, you were describing my life. He said, I went, through, I went through the same stuff. I went through foster care. I, went, I had foster parents who were abusive to me. I was sexually abused, and that matters. And he says, I didn't, I didn't know that man went through the same thing I went through, and it really made me stop and think about the way I see and treat other people, and I really felt bad about what I did. And I want you to know what you're doing is the right thing, and I wish somebody had been able to help me deal with the, the circumstances that I had to live through like you're helping him. And then he says, as he walks through the security and as he's going, he says, hey, and by the way, he says, on the way back from, <laughs> on the way back from federal court the other day, we stopped at Wendy's and I got him, I got him that chocolate milkshake. He says, so he ought to be a lot easier to deal with today. <laughs> and Brian Stevenson said he was. He was <laughs> a lot easier to handle. The last thing I want to talk about is a chapter called Broken. You know, when you, when you do this business, when you do this work that I do, um, I don't mean this will sound rude. I don't mean it this way. But one of the things you sort of dread are your friends coming up to you and trying to explain the criminal justice system to you or, or asking you, man, how do you do this work? Or how do you represent people that you know are guilty? Or even worse, how do you represent those people? Um, one of the things I used to say all the time is if I had a dime for every time somebody called me on the phone and said, hey, Mark, uh, I've got this person who's gotten in trouble, and I'd like you to represent him. I mean, I don't want you to let anybody in your office do it. I want you to do it because this guy's not like the rest of the people that you represent. If I had a dime for every time somebody called me and told me that. I, um... And so the question we always get is, how do you do this? How do you represent those people? I, all I do is murder work in my office, basically. And so people will tell me, for 35 years, you've represented people who've killed people. I mean, how do you do that? And I'm going to tell you, it's a really hard question to answer. It's not a hard question. I mean, it's, I thoroughly understand why I do it, but articulating it to you or to anyone on a level that would make sense, I, I, I struggle with the ability to tell you to the extent that anybody cares, but those who ask, I have a really hard time articulating to others why I do what I do. I don't doubt why I do it. I want to do it until the day I die. So I'm, I'm not... But one of the things that struck me in Brian's chapter called Broken is the beautiful way he explains why I do what I do. And, and I, I think um, most lawyers, I think, who do this kind of work would agree with me. And I wanted to read, uh, it's a little bit long, and I have to set it up um, by this particular excerpt. He tells a story about something that happened to him when he was a kid. He says, when I was a boy, my mother took me to church when I was about 10 years old. I was outside of our church with my friends, one of whom had brought a visiting relative to the service. The visiting child was a shy, skinny boy about my height who was clinging to his cousin nervously. He didn't say anything as the group of us chattered away. I asked him where he was from, and when this child tried to speak, he stumbled horribly. He had a severe speech impediment and couldn't get his mouth to cooperate. He couldn't even say the name of the town that he lived in. I had never seen anyone stutter like that. I thought he must have been joking or playing around, and so I laughed. So um, my friend looked at me worriedly, but I didn't stop laughing. Out of the corner of my eyes, I saw my mother looking at me with an expression I'd never seen before. It, it was a mix of horror, anger, and shame, but all focused on me. It stopped me laughing instantly. I'd always felt adored by my mother, so I was unnerved when she called me over. When I got to her, she was very angry with me. What are you doing? What? I didn't do, don't ever laugh at someone because they can't get the words out right. Don't you ever do that. I'm sorry. I was devastated to be reprimanded by my mom so harshly. Mom, I didn't mean to do anything wrong. Well, you should know better, Brian. Well, I'm sorry, I thought. I don't want to hear it, Brian. There's no excuse. I'm very disappointed in you. Now, I want you to go back over there and tell that little boy that you're sorry. Yes, ma'am. And then I want you to give that boy a hug. Huh? <laughs> then I want you to tell him you love him. 
I looked up at her, and to my horror, <laughs> I saw that she was dead serious. <laughs> I had reacted as apologetically as I possibly could, but this was way too much. Mom, I can't go over there and tell that boy I love him. <laughs> People will, she interrupted, and she gave me that look again. I somberly turned around, and I returned to my group of friends. They had obviously seen my mother scolding, I could tell because they were all staring at me. I went up to the little boy who struggled to speak. Look, man, I'm sorry. I was, <laughs> I was genuinely apologetic for laughing and even more deeply regretful of the situation I had put myself in. I looked over at my mom, who was still staring at me. I lunged at the boy to give him a, <laughs> a very awkward hug. I think I scared him by grabbing him like that. But when he realized that I was trying to hug him, his body relaxed and he hugged me back. He said my friends looked at me oddly as I spoke. Uh, also, um, uh, I love you. <laughs> he said I tried to say it as insincerely as, as I could get away with and half smiled as I spoke. I was still hugging the boy so he couldn't see the disingenuous look on my youthful face. It made me feel less weird to smile, you know, like it was a joke. But then the boy hugged me tighter and whispered in my ear. He spoke flawlessly, without a stutter and without hesitation. And you can imagine, he said, I love you too. There was such a tenderness and earnestness in his voice. And just like that, I thought I would start crying, like me. All right, so that's the, that's the, the setup. And then later in the book, he's talking about a guy named Johnny Dill, he represented Johnny Dill for only about 60 days, and he tells Johnny Dill's story of getting charged and convicted of capital murder. And Brian only got involved with his case about 60 days before his scheduled execution. And he is all day long, he's waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court to grant a stay on Johnny Dill's execution, and it doesn't happen. And he's talking to Johnny Dill, and Johnny Dill stutters. And so as he is talking to Johnny on the day that Johnny's getting ready to get executed, waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court to stay the execution and fearing that it's not going to happen. He reminisces in his mind about that incident at his church when, his, uh, when he had had that encounter with that other boy. So they, it winds up they don't st stay Johnny Dill's case, and Johnny Dill winds up getting executed. And Brian Stevenson hangs up the phone, and he decides at that point he's going to quit what he's doing. He can't take it anymore. And so he writes this. He says, it took me a while to sort all this out, but I realized something sitting there while Johnny Dill was being killed in Holman Prison. After working for more than 25 years, I understood that I don't do what I do because it's required or necessary or important. I do it because I have no choice. I do what I do because I'm broken too. He says, my years of struggling against inequality, abusive power, poverty, oppression, and injustice had finally revealed something to me about myself. Being close to suffering, death, executions, and cruel punishments didn't just illuminate the brokenness in others. In a moment of anguish and heartbreak, it also exposed my own brokenness. You can't effectively fight abusive power, poverty, inequality, illness, oppression, or injustice and not be broken by it. We are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. I desperately wanted mercy for Johnny Dill. I would have done anything to create justice for him, but I couldn't pretend that his struggle was disconnected from my own. The ways in which I have been hurt and the ways I have hurt others are different from the ways Jimmy Dill suffered and caused suffering, but our shared brokenness connected us. Paul Farmer, the renowned physician who has spent his life trying to cure the world's sickest and poorest people, once quoted me something that the writer Thomas Merton said, we are bodies of broken bones. I guess I've always known but never fully considered that being broken is what makes us human. We all have our reasons. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by things we would never have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. We have a choice. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing, or we can deny our brokenness, forswear compassion, and, as a result, deny our own humanity. I thought of the guard strapping Jimmy Dill to the gurney um, at that very hour. I thought of the people who would cheer his death and see it as some kind of victory. I realized they were broken people, too. 
even if they would never admit it. So many of us have become afraid and angry. We've become so fearful and vengeful that we've thrown away children, discarded the disabled, and sanctioned the imprisonment of the sick and the weak, not because they are a threat to public safety or beyond rehabilitation or because we think it makes us seem tough, less broken. I thought of the victims of violent crime and the survivors of murdered loved ones and how we've pressured them to recycle their pain and anguish and give it back to the offenders we prosecute. I thought of the many ways we've legalized vengeful and cruel punishments, how we've allowed our victimization to justify the victimization of others. We've submitted to the harsh instinct to crush those amongst us whose brokenness is the most visible. But simply punishing the broken, walking away from them and, and hiding them from sight only ensures that they remain broken, and we do too. There is no wholeness outside of our reciprocal humanity. So it strikes me that what I've always told people in answer to that question, how can you do this work or why do you do it, I've always said because I see myself in my clients. I've always said that. But then I've always walked away thinking, you know, I represented a young man one time who took a single-age razor blade and decapitated his two-year-old son right in front of a police officer. I don't see myself in that. And so I've always doubted my own answer. I've always doubted that I do this because I look at my clients and I see myself in them. What Brian has said is you see your brokenness in them and their brokenness in you, even though it's different. It is on a different level. But it's that brokenness and that ability to acknowledge that brokenness and understand that to be at our core, our own humanity, that compels us to one another and that creates this sense of community between you and the other individuals who you recognize also to be broken. And so for me, this was enlightening in that it uh, answered a question that I've been asked over and over and over again but wasn't smart enough or couldn't articulate what it is I really felt that drew me to the clients um, that that I uh, represented. So... Um, that is my story, and I'm sticking to it. And um, I, I highly recommend the book. It is a really easy read. Um, so that was a very compelling much. presentation. Anyone have questions? Uh, thanks. Um, social workers get burnout. Do PDs? Do PDs, sure. Um, similar to the Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there is a, a very fundamental difference between the nature of the work I do with clients and the nature of the work Brian Stevenson does. When Brian Stevenson meets a client, his client has been through a trial, he's been convicted, and he's been given a terrible sentence, and that client is in hell. And Brian Stevenson's job is to work as hard as he possibly can to pull him from that hell and to save him. And so it's all about let's pin our ears back and let's fight, fight as hard as we can, and I'm going to try to save you. What I'm doing is very, very different. What I'm doing, you haven't been convicted yet. And so what I'm trying to tell you is, trust me, I will fight hard for you. I'm a good lawyer. But then at some point I'm going to sit down and say, you and I need to talk about you pleading guilty. And you're going to say, what? I thought you were going to fight for me. I thought we were going to trial. I thought you believed in my innocence. And I say, I do. I do. But if you get convicted, you're looking at 20 years. The prosecutor has offered me three, and we can apply for probation. I think you ought to seriously consider taking that three. And what that client typically sees that is betrayal. My lawyer that I thought believed that I was innocent and believed that he was going to fight for me is now telling me I need to walk into court and plead guilty. And so usually the lawyer-client relationship really starts to get rocky there. And over time, that dynamic can really weigh you down. People walk away saying, man, I had a public defender, and all he wanted me to do was plead guilty. He didn't want to fight for me. I represented a man one time who was charged with first-degree murder, and the state didn't have a good case. And I tried the case. It took us a week to try and the proof went out beautifully. Everyone, as the jury went to deliver, deliberate, told me that I had won. They didn't need to tell me that. I knew I'd won. I knew I had won that case. Every bailiff, the, the judge told me in chambers while the jury was deliberating, don't worry, that, that jury's not convicting him. And the jury came back and convicted him of second-degree murder. My client was 37 years old. Second-degree murder, he got him 25 years and 100%. It was a life sentence. 
And that guy looked me right in the eyes, having just learned that he was going to die, and he said, thank you. Nobody has ever fought for me like that. And so you feel appreciative that the client appreciated what I did for him, yet almost every night I go home, I think about Carlos Cornwell. I I had won Carlos Cornwell's case. I had won that case, and he's serving the rest of his life in prison because I hadn't won that. And so did I do a disservice to him? Did I tell him we need to go to trial when he shouldn't have? Did I understate how important it was for him to plead guilty and take a deal? Did I not go to the prosecutor and get the right deal? Those sorts of things wear you down over time, and I think it's those pressures that cause public defenders to get burnt out. It's also caseload. You know, I'm, I'm not the lawyer I could be, and I'm not the lawyer I could be because I've got judges who give us thousands of cases a year. We've got, in our office right now with our caseloads, we have two hours per misdemeanor. We have 11 hours per felony. And so, you know, I, I'm not saying that we triage. We work as hard as we can. I work seven days a week. And I'm not saying that for you all to say, oh, you know, no, I mean, it's, it's just I work every Saturday. I work most Sundays. I work as hard as I can work. Um, but if I had fewer cases, I think I'd be a better lawyer. And if I, if I were a better lawyer, I think there'd be less stress on me and I'd, I'd be less likely to burn out and want to go do something else. I had one of my best friends came in. He worked for me for about 17 years. And he walked in one day out of the blue and he says, I'm quitting. I said, Harvey, you're quitting. Why are you quitting? And he says, I'm tired of being a shitty lawyer. He said, I want to go into private practice where I can, where I can control my caseloads and I can do quality work. So that, in a public defender environment, that's the most challenging, the most damning, destructive force, caseloads, and that, um, that pressure of, of helping clients make decisions when they don't have anybody to help them through that. So, Yes, sir? And, and what can we do to start fixing the system? Well, um, I guess the easy answer to that is just to get informed and to get involved. One of the things Brian Stevenson said his mother used to tell him is that you have to remain proximate. In order to solve the big problems of the world, you have to remain proximate, and that way you understand the nature of that problem and you understand the potential solution. You probably ought to know who your public defender is. We handle a lot of cases. We do some things that you need to know what we're doing. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we call ourselves now the community law office, the Knox County Public Defender's Community Law Office. What we're doing is we're trying to impact the community in the most positive way we can impact it. We are trying to prevent crime. We are trying to reduce recidivism. And what we need to do in order to accomplish those goals, we can't do on our own. And so I'll take this opportunity to invite all of you to please, if you want to be involved, please come by the office. We'll be glad to give you a tour. We'll be glad to show you what it is we do. And we would welcome any contribution that you would like to make to the work that we do. But, you know, who is your DA? What are her policies what are, what are her goals? Who are your judges? Uh, now we've gotten into the situation where if you want to be a judge, you've got to be a prosecutor. A judge has to be a neutral and detached person. Um, it's an adversarial system. You've got a prosecutor, and you have to have an equally financed defense who's fighting just as hard, and this judge is the, the, the one who calls the balls and strikes, if you will. I hate that analogy, but that's used all the time. But when you've got a prosecutor and you've got a judge who's a prosecutor, bad things happen. And they don't, they don't always happen intentionally. They just happen that way when your orientation is, is directed that way. So knowing who your players are, holding them accountable, knowing what their ideologies are and what they're trying to do, and resist the temptation to say we can lock people away and solve this problem. We can't jail our way out of this problem. So, Yeah, thank you for the work you do, and thank you for speaking about it with real passion. Let I'm me... sorry I didn't control myself. <laughs> don't. I don't. Don't. I don't. I don't know why I got so emotional over that. I mean, I couldn't. Uh, and then once it happened, I couldn't rein it back in, so I'm sorry. You spoke of the incredible rise in the number of fellow citizens that we are locking up these days. And you probably see some of these people who were locked up on low-level charges right. 
come back through the system? What has happened to them because they spent time incarcerated? Um, there has been a lot of social research that, that has, has come out about pretrial detention. There are pretrial risk assessment tools that are incredibly successful in coming up to answer two questions. Number one is, if we let you out, will you come back to court? Number one. Number two is, if we let you out, what are the chances that you're going to commit a, a new violation while you're out and before you come back to court? There are risk assessment tools that are extremely, extremely good at predicting those two things. And so what we have said is, if you can determine if a person will come back to court and if the public safety is threatened by releasing them or not, if you can answer those two questions, why wouldn't you let that govern your decisions about whether somebody stays in jail pretrial or not? And the answer in Knox County, for the most part, have been, we don't want to do that. Why don't you want to do that? Well, what we really need to do is build more jail space. Why do you want to build more jail space if, if, when those pretrial risk assessment tools are implemented, jurisdictions have found that you reduce your pretrial jail population by about 20%. We have 1,300 people in jail in Knox County right now. If I can reduce that population by, 13, by, by 20%, you don't need to build more jail space. You can do it and assure that that person will come back to court and assure that he won't commit a violation while he's out. To get specifically to your question, one of the things that research shows is that if you are a low-risk offender, if you are characterized based on this risk assessment tool as a low-risk offender and you stay in jail for three days, you are 40% more likely to commit an offense when you do get out on bond than if you got out before that three-day period. So it is amazing to me the impact of just a few days in jail in terms of encouraging criminal behavior that this low-risk individual would not have otherwise engaged in. Now, that sounds sort of counterintuitive to me, but that three days makes a huge difference. And yet our county response is we will review bail after they've been in jail 10 days. If they can't make bond in 10 days, we'll bring them into court and we'll talk about what we're going to do with them. And so it seems like we are unwilling to be smart about what we know is out there and how we can protect the public and also free up some jail space. And, of course, that's coming from a public defender. And so people say, yeah, 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 that's just some lefty that's trying to say you shouldn't lock anybody up. I'm not trying to say we don't lock, we shouldn't lock anybody up, but we should be smart about, smarter about who we lock up and who we don't lock up. You can't imagine how much money there is to make keeping those jails full. You can't imagine. For instance, you can't have visitation at the jail. So if you're a pretrial detainee, you're going to sit in jail for up to a year waiting for your case to go to trial. During that period of time, you can't have visitation. You can't see your wife. You can't see your children. You can only do that by Skype. Why? Why have we stopped face-to-face -face visitation? Because I can charge you for Skype. I can't charge you for face-to-face -face visitation. So now the only way that those 1,100, 1,200 people in jail can see their loved ones is to pay to Skype and get on a computer to do it. Um, phone calls, you wouldn't believe how much it costs, how much it costs to make a phone call. If I want to give a loved one in jail money, occasionally I'll put some money on somebody's book. If I want to put $20 on your book, I have to pay the county $5 for the privilege of doing it. You know, if my bank ATM charged me a $5 service charge to withdraw $20, I would, I'd hit the roof. And we did. If you, you might recall, when it went to a $2 ATM fee, they ran a special on 60 Minutes about how crazy that was to do that. There's a $5 surcharge on the ATM out at the detention facility. It is the only way to get money on someone's books. Um, so the phones, the ATM surcharges, the visitation, um, there is an, at 1,100 or 1,200 people every single day, 365 days a year, we're talking seven figures that are generated in fees and revenue for having those jails full. So when you say let's reduce the jail populations, they don't say no because we'll lose money, but they say no, we can't do that because I don't want there to be any danger to the community. It's really about money. 
I can find you 200 low-level offenders right now and let you, and I think most people privately would agree with me, most criminal justice people would agree that there's probably 200 people we could let out of jail tomorrow with absolutely no threat to public safety at all. But we're not doing it. We're not about to do it. And, and I think there's a lot of money at stake here. Mr. Stevens, thank you so much. This has thank been you. wonderful. Can we give him a round of applause? Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.